Well, welcome to Palm Sunday, beginning of a week that I trust that your focus will be able to be upon on Jesus and what He's done for us. And uh, so today we're going to look at um, the, the, the kingship of Jesus. We're going to look at the kingship of Jesus and, and what that means to us, how that affects us and our relationship with Him. And uh, as Americans, uh, though, most of us don't like that idea of king or monarchy. After all, that's why we fought a revolutionary war in 1776, to be free of tyranny of a, of a king. And even though the king might be a benevolent king, he's still a king. And a king's power is usually absolute. And a person usually becomes a king by claiming that he has a special right to that power, either by becoming a uh, from, by coming from the right royal family or even by claiming a divine right. A person who aspires to kingship has to establish his right to the throne. And we as Americans don't really like that idea very much. So when we as American Christians read in the, the Bible about Jesus being our king, many of us don't know how to respond to that idea. Having a king simply isn't part of our everyday experience. Maybe we can liken it to a president? Maybe not. Maybe not. But we're not even sure we want a king as important as Jesus is to us. <clears throat> there have been plenty of kings in, in history that have confirmed those feelings we have about kingship. For example, Alexander the Great. He is the ancient Greek king and is a great example of this. He lived about 350 years before Jesus walked this earth, and Alexander was the king of Macedon in Greece. In many ways, Alexander was a typical king, and his life epitomizes many of the reasons we as Americans don't like kings very much. Alexander became the king of Macedon in Greece for the one simple reason that his father before him had been king. From the cradle, Alexander's mom, Olympias, and his uh, father, Philip, told him that he was destined to rule over Greece. And he was spoiled in every way conceivable, growing up in a royal palace and with privilege and prosperity. So when his father, Philip, was murdered by one of his bodyguards, Alexander quickly ascended to the throne. Now, to strengthen his claim to the throne... Alexander claimed that he was a direct descendant of the Greek god Hercules. <laughs> that ought to do it. So Alexander claimed a right to absolute power based on coming from the right family and from his claim to be a descendant from a Greek god. Who's to question that now? And eventually Alexander had himself and his mother declared as gods themselves. Interesting that you, <laughs> I'm a god now. And Alexander built temples so people could worship them. How wonderful. Alexander is called the Great because he was probably the greatest military strategist from the ancient history. And his conquests of Greece, Asia, Persia, and India was an incredible campaign. But by today's standards, Alexander and his generals would have been convicted of war crimes. You see, as Alexander marched in conquest, he butchered people, he raped people, kidnapped people, stole people's property, and destroyed entire cities. And anyone who ever insulted Alexander ended up regretting it, as Alexander would carry grudges for years. Basically, Alexander was a violent and brutal person who lived in a time when nations were ruled by violent 
and brutal people. And his tyranny and violence are just another example of why we as Americans prefer democracy to monarchy. And Alexander wasn't the exception, but he was the rule of how ancient kings acted. So, for us to call Jesus Christ as king can be a little difficult for us, even as Christians. What we need to realize is that Jesus is a different kind of king than any king we've ever read about or encountered. He's not like Alexander or Caesar Augustus or even the kings of ancient Israel. Jesus is in a class all by himself. So today we're going to look at the kingship of Jesus. And to do that, we're going to look at Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And then we're going to see four characteristics of Jesus that make him an entirely different kind of king than any royalty the human race has ever encountered before. And because of these characteristics, we're also going to see that to be a Christian is to pledge our loyalty to the kingship of Jesus in our lives as well. So Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to land, the first 11 verses. If you want to turn there, we'll be there in a moment. It'll also be on the screen for you as well too. But let's look at the first two verses in our text about the triumphal entry of Jesus. So first two verses of Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. So Jesus has been journeying from northern Israel in the region of Galilee, south toward the capital of Jerusalem. And three times on this journey, Jesus has predicted that betrayal and suffering await him in Jerusalem. But it's in Jerusalem that Jesus will meet his destiny. Jerusalem is the place where everything will change for the human race. Now, Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem the same time the Jewish people were preparing to celebrate the, the, the annual Passover. And so as some of us learned yesterday during the Passover Seder meal, Passover commemorated Israel's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt and their birth as a nation. And the Passover is in some ways similar to our Independence Day celebration on the 4th of July. It's also a time they celebrated how God spared them from the plagues that He sent upon the Egyptians. So as Jesus journeys from Galilee toward Jerusalem, He's gradually picked up a procession of people also going to celebrate the Passover. While passing through Jericho, He healed a blind man named Bartimaeus. After being healed, Bartimaeus joined Jesus' procession toward Jerusalem. And Jesus arrives at Bethany, which is actually south of Jerusalem, but that's where the road went, and that's where Jesus went as well. And from Bethany, Jesus will turn then north to Jerusalem. And it's from just outside Bethany that Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead to get a colt. At this point in the story, virtually every action Jesus engages in as he's entering Jerusalem carries deep significance to the Jewish mind. We might not catch, in on, catch up on that as, as quickly as first century readers, so I'll try to, try to point out some of those things as we go along. But remember that up to this point, Jesus has kept his identity as the Messiah hidden and secret as best as he could. 
but now he seems to go out of his way to come out into the open. And all of Jesus' actions right here to this point it, it, it all point to his kingship, as we'll see in a, in a moment. Now, part of the significance of the cult comes from an, an ancient Hebrew prophecy about the coming Messiah. Almost 2,000 years before Jesus lived, and almost 4,000 years ago, the Jewish leader Jacob had given this prophecy found in Genesis chapter 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Now, the Jewish people understood this to be a prediction about the coming Messiah, and the Messiah who would rule as the rightful king over the nation of Israel. And by taking a colt that's tethered, this ancient prediction is applied then to Jesus. So now, look at the circumstances at how he gets this colt in verses 3 through 6. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Now, it's possible that Jesus had made preparations ahead of time in this village to have a colt waiting. Possible. But it's also possible that this is an example of what's called the royal right to transport, um, especially in the ancient world. You see, a king or other high-ranking ruler had a fundamental right to seize a, a horse or other animal for official transportation if he needed it. And this right is similar to what we see in the movies when a police officer flashes his badge to commandeer someone's car to chase a bad guy. And in the ancient world, as long as the animal was eventually returned to the rightful owner, a member of royalty had the legal right to seize an animal for transportation. Maybe that's what's happening here, which is why Jesus tells his followers to say, the Lord needs it. Obviously, the Lord here is Jesus, and although the, Lord, the word Lord can simply be a polite way of saying sir, it can also mean king or ruler. So as the royal lord, the rightful king of Israel, Jesus exercises his royal right to transport by borrowing this colt. Now whether this is a miracle uh, Jesus performs or he's made arrangements, again, we don't know for sure. But the point seems to be here that Jesus, as a rightful king, is exercising his royal right of transport coming into Jerusalem. You know, look what happens next in verses 7 through 10. When they brought the colt to Jesus, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So because this colt uh, wasn't accustomed to human transport, they used their jackets and clothing as a saddle. And then Jesus sits on the colt to ride the final leg of his journey into Jerusalem. 
And the people spread out their clothing on the road, the ancient equivalent of rolling out the, the red carpet for the arrival of an important person into the city. And now Jesus, riding into the city of Jerusalem on a colt, also had an incredible significance to the people of Israel. One of the ancient prophecies about the coming of the Messiah looked forward to just this moment. About 500 years before the birth of Jesus, the Hebrew prophet Zechariah had preached this very thing. In chapter 9 of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is fulfilling the, this prophetic scripture and by doing so, he's showing the people that he's the true king. He's the one who's righteous and who brings deliverance to Israel. He's the one who will bring God's peace to all nations and rule as king, not just in Israel, but over the ends of the earth. Jesus is bringing this prophetic scripture to pass. But what a lot of people don't realize is that this practice of Zechariah or excuse me, this prediction of Zechariah, uh, actually recalls an earlier event from uh, about 200 years before the prophet uh, Zechariah. Zechariah is actually predicting that what happened at King Solomon's coronation as king back in 790 B.C. would one day happen again when the Messiah comes to rule as king. The book of 1 Kings describes Solomon's coronation in this way. 1 Kings chapter 1 says, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet put Solomon on King's, King David's mule and escorted him to Gihon. Z Zadok, the priest, took the horn of oil and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing flutes and rejoicing greatly. So you probably can see the similarities there between Solomon's coronation back in 790 B.C. and Zechariah's prophecy and 270 years later and Jesus entering into Jerusalem about 33 A.D. You might remember who Solomon was. He was King David's rightful heir to the throne. So Zechariah was looking forward to another rightful heir from David's dynasty to one day rule in Israel. And Jesus is revealing to the people that day that he is that person. So now as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the people shout out, Hosanna! And their shout of praise actually goes back to another text from the Old Testament, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is what's called a Hallel Psalm, which is one of the psalms that Jewish pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem would sing as they walked into the city for a special festival like the Passover. There are about half a dozen of these Hallel Psalms that they would sing. And the word Hosanna means save us, and it was often used as a word of praise, which, much like what we might use in the words of, of hallelujah or amen. And the whole section from Psalm 118 goes like this, Psalm 118, the verses 25 through 27. O Lord, save us, and that's that word, Hebrew word, word hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and He has made His light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession. So, 
these pilgrims going to Jerusalem would have been singing this song because it was one of the psalms they sang as they walked. But by singing this song, as Jesus rides in on the colt, these words have special significance. The song sung by the pilgrims is slightly different than what we read in the psalm. The pilgrims asked God to bless them with the coming kingdom of King David. Now, those words would have been viewed as an act of treason by the Roman government. The Roman government had their own king over Israel. His name was Herod, if you remember. And King Herod wasn't from the dynasty of King David. So from, from these pilgrims, for these pilgrims to sing about the dynasty of King David would have been reviewed as a rejection of the dynasty of Herod. And that, that alone was enough to get you crucified by the Romans. It's no wonder the Jewish festivals like the, the Passover festival were viewed as times of political turmoil by the Romans. It would be like us celebrating the 4th of July if we were under the rule of another government. They wouldn't like that very much. Now, the anticipation keeps building and building in this procession as Jesus continues to do things that lift him up as a rightful king of Israel. And in many ways, Jesus is established in a claim that Romans will later crucify him for namely being the king of the Jews. And that's certainly what's going on here in, in the way he comes into, Jer into Jerusalem and the response of the people. But in verse 11, in verse 11, the entire procession ends in kind of an anticlimax. It, it just drops off. Look with me in verse 11, Mark 11. Jesus entered, the, entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So instead of his royal procession ending in Christ's coronation as king, he stops, looks around, no delegation to meet him, no recognition of his status, no cheers of long live the king. Instead, it's late, so Jesus just observes and then goes back to Bethany. What builds up like a shout ends in a whisper. Now, all this points to Jesus as our king, but again, as a different kind of king. Let me bring out some characteristics here about all this. First, we learn that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is linking his claim to kingship here with, with the ancient hopes of the people of Israel. He's not suddenly appearing as if he's something new, but he's laying claim to a status that goes back for centuries. And this is important for us, because if Jesus is going to be our king as people, it's important that he meet the qualifications of kingship. So the book of Genesis tells us that God's true king would come from the nation of Israel. And of course, Jesus was born from the Jewish people. Genesis also claims that God's true king would come from the Jewish tribe of Judah. And of course, Jesus was born from this tribe. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said that his true king would be a descendant of ancient King David. And of course, Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus meets all the criteria. Now, this might seem to be just an empty exercise in ancient genealogy, but it's, impor it's an important issue. It's important because if Jesus is the promised God, it means God keeps his promises to us. And the fact that Jesus came to this world as God promised to and sent Him from, for centuries before is evidence that God is a promise-keeping God. 
so we can have full confidence that God is trustworthy and reliable to keep His promises to us. When we're feeling discouraged, when we're feeling hopeless, like things will never change in our lives, we're reminded of God's promise that He's not finished with us yet. When we face a a temptation and we can't see a way out, we're reminded of God's promise that He always provides a way of escape. When we fall into sin and feel like God could never take us back, we're reminded of God's promise that through Christ, He forgives all of our sins. God is a promise-keeping God. And when we're tempted to doubt that, look again at Jesus as the promised King. Jesus is also the sovereign King. Sovereign King. We don't use the word sovereign very much these days, but the word sovereign means in control or under the dominion of. A nation is said to be sovereign within its own borders. A sovereign nation is an independent nation, a nation that's not being dominated by another group. The United States would be a sovereign nation. The whole way Jesus gets the, the cult is meant to show, uh, show us Jesus as the sovereign king. Regardless of whether the cult is there as part of some pre-planning or whether it's a miracle, it's an act of sovereignty. Jesus is the Lord who can take the cult as an exercise of His, royal, his own royal dominion. And if Jesus is the sovereign king, we as Christians are subject of His kingship, then that means all that we have is under His sovereignty. If you're a Christian, there's nothing in your life that is hands off to Jesus. Your education is under His sovereignty. Your house is under His sovereignty. Your car is under His sovereignty. Your income, your bank account, your skills, your experiences, your goals, your family, all under the sovereignty of Jesus. And as the king, Jesus can come to you and say, I want to use that for my kingdom. Becky and I acknowledged that when we were having our family. And as each child was born, we dedicated that child to the Lord, truly saying, you have this child, Lord. Thank you for rewarding us with this child. Thank you for rewarding us with five of these kids. And we give this child at each time, give this child to you to do as you wish. Thank you for letting us parent this child in your ways and to teach him about you and what's right and what's wrong. And thank you, Lord, for allowing us to do that. But Lord, he's yours. Lord, she's yours. And so as they went on their way as adult children, we were reminded of that. And being reminded of that and know that whatever goes on in their lives, God is in control. God knows what's going on, and he, it's, they are His. He's sovereign over our kids. Jesus is a sovereign king, and He's sovereign over the lives of His subjects. Is He sovereign? Is He the sovereign king in your life? We also learn from this section, too, though, that Jesus is the humble king. By riding in on a colt instead of a white war horse, Jesus is making an important statement to us about the character of his kingship. Jesus isn't the conquering general like Alexander the Great. 
who rides in on a war horse and burns the village. He's not a king who, who rises to the throne by exterminating the competition. He's not a king who rules by violence and coercion. Jesus is the king who came down from his throne to suffer and die for his subjects. One of the songs we sing has a line in it that goes, Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Jesus is our humble king, the God of the broken, the friend of the weak. And usually when a person becomes a king, it's so that the person can leave their humble beginnings behind. Alexander the Great surrounded himself with wealth and luxury after he sacked Persia and drove out the Persian king, Darius. He clothed himself in the best of imported Persian silk, and he moved into the king's royal palace with all of the greatest amenities the ancient world could offer. And to be a, a typical king is to be arrogant, really, to be proud and egotistical. It's hardly possible to imagine a person becoming a king without being arrogant and conceited. But yet Jesus truly is the humble king. And because he's the humble king, he calls us as his subjects to be humble people as well. A humble person is a person who sees themselves accurately. Not too high, not too low. To be humble is to be willing to associate with people who don't have status and the rest of society views as unimportant. Humility is refusing to push ourselves to the front, kicking and clawing our way ahead in life. Humility is admitting where we're wrong and asking for forgiveness. Humility is being brutally honest about our weaknesses, avoiding the temptation to minimize them or deny that they exist. So Christ is the humble king, and his subjects choose the path of humility. And finally, we learn here that Jesus is the unexpected king. Unexpected king. The anticlimax of this this triumphal entry into Jerusalem tells us that the people of the city weren't expecting their king to arrive. For the people in Jerusalem, it was business as usual. Just another Passover celebration another annual festival with Jewish pilgrims from throughout the ancient world making their their trek to the temple, just another crowd singing praises and offering sacrifices in the temple. They weren't expecting the fulfillment of all God's promises to actually arrive. They sang about those promises each year. They yearned for the prophecies to come through. They spoke excitedly with each other about them, but they didn't really expect them to come to pass at least not the way Jesus did it. But when the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams arrived, there was no one there to meet him. Now, if the people who were looking forward to the king's arrival didn't expect it in the way it came, we should also be cautious about how God meets our expectations. Sometimes God fulfills his promises in our lives in the most unexpected ways. Imagine a Christian who feels God leading him to start a business, a new business. He's assured of God's blessing on the uh, the business, so he steps out in faith, and the business ends up bombing. But in the midst of the trial, God shapes and molds the person's character in ways that cause him to mature. Did God bless that man? I believe so. I believe that man would be blessed 
just not in the way the man thought God would bless him. Maybe you've wound up in situations like that too, where you found yourself in, in moments where God is leading you in this, and you think, okay, it's going to work, and we're going to step out in faith, and then things kind of go south. You're going, whoa, whoa, I was following you, God. What, what's going on? God had a different intention in mind for you in that situation. To build something within you, to develop in you things that need to be developed. The Christian author C.S. Lewis once described God as the great iconoclast. What Lewis meant is that God has a way of breaking out of the box we put him in. An iconoclast is a person who destroys false images of God. And all of us tend to create scaled-down images of God that make him a little bit more manageable. We tend to paint God into a corner, trying to get a handle on God so we can manage Him. But God breaks out of those boxes, continually reminding us that He's God and we're not. God is reliable, but He's also unexpected in how He works. So the question for you, is Jesus your King? Is Jesus your King? Jesus rides into town as a king. God's glory returns to the temple. It's clear that Mark sees Jesus is the king, the king for all people, for all time, the king who's worthy of our praise and our adoration, a king who deserves the reception that he got on that Palm Sunday coming into Jerusalem. But do we serve Jesus like a king? If we really served a king, how would we do it? What would that look like? Well, first... I believe it would be in humility. And as I've already described, humility is basically having a modest view of one's own importance. But this is the exact opposite of what we were taught, what we might see in ourselves today. Our inclination is to have a, a very high view of ourselves <laughs> and to think we are the most important, to only serve our own self-interest. We often hear that we need to take care of ourselves, love ourselves, ourselves first. And Jesus rode into into town on a donkey, to serve mankind and to die a criminal's death, all for you, all for me. And Jesus humbled himself to serve others. He washed the disciples' feet to serve them. He, he goes to the cross to serve you. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and he washed you with his very own blood. So Jesus is the king and he lowered himself we should do the same as we serve the King and have humility by reflect, be reflected in our love and service to others. How would we serve a King? We would serve a King with humility. We would also serve a King with fear and respect. A King is to be feared. <laughs> now, the fear I'm talking about, of course, here is not a you know, terrified fear. Not a strike me down if I do something wrong fear. I'm talking about a fear that is... Describe more like the admiration we, we should have before a holy and righteous king. Uh, Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All these come together and the, the, the type of fear and respect that we need to have before our King. 
Fear and trembling. It is fear that shares a love and hope that is bound with God. So how, how, should we, how would we serve a king? We would serve a king with fear and trembling. And lastly, you would serve a king by doing everything the king asked you. <laughs> total obedience. A total obedience. You would walk as our God has walked. In the Spirit. As followers of Jesus, we are to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us about that. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of the Holy Spirit's presence and working in the lives of maturing believers. The King asks us to do these things. He asks us to walk in love, be joy-filled, have peace that resides in Him. Be men and women of peace that are they're at peace. <laughs> be patient. Be kind, be good, be faithful to Him, gentle toward others, and be self-controlled. The king is asking you to serve Him in this way. But be on your guard because the world is encouraging the opposite of all this. So, do you truly serve Jesus as king? Or have you made Jesus become someone who serves you? For us as Christians, Jesus Christ is our King. He is the promised King. He is the sovereign King. He is the humble King and the unexpected King. And although we as Americans might have our reservations about kings, there's no way to follow Jesus without being a subject of His kingdom, His kingship. Now, a person might admire Jesus' virtue or be inspired by His teachings or be captivated by His sacrifice, but that doesn't make a person a Christian until they receive Him as Savior and Lord, and subject themselves to His kingship. Poets and preachers have often compared Jesus of Nazareth with Alexander the Great. Both died at the age of 33. One unknown poet put it this way, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self, the other for you and me. The Greek died upon a throne, the Jew upon a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the others but a loss. One walked with mighty men, and the other walked alone. One shed the whole world's blood, the other gave his own. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek died at Babylon, the Jew at Calvary. One made himself God, but the one who was God made himself less. One lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died and rose to live forever, King of kings and Lord of lords. In some ways, Jesus of Nazareth and Alexander the Great are an interesting, uh, Alexander the Great are an interesting contrast if you compare them together. Both Jesus and Alexander died in their early 30s, but Alexander achieved his greatness with a bloody sword and an arrogant ambition. Jesus achieved his greatness with sacrifice and suffering. Alexander was born into a wealthy family who taught him from the cradle that he was destined for kingship. Jesus was born into a, a peasant family and grew up in the poverty of rural Galilee. Yet when all is said and done, Alexander's kingdom crumbled when he died. Yet Jesus' kingdom lived on after his death in the lives of men and women like you and me who confess his lordship and trust in him. Jesus was definitely a different kind of king. 
And today we saw this different kind of king ride into town on his continued march toward the cross, the cross which will pay the sin debt that we all owe, the cross where Jesus will suffer and die for you and me. And when we profess Jesus as king in our lives, we pledge to give up our life for the sake of our king and what he has done for us. So is Jesus your king? He should be. If he is king of your life, it means we serve with humility, we serve out of a healthy fear and respect for him and his word, and, he, and we pledge to do what he has commanded. If Jesus is your king, are you serving the king of kings in this way? Whatever you are doing with your relationship with, with Christ, make sure you're growing deeply with it. Make sure you're growing deeply with Him in that relationship and that it is, in a way, you're allowing Him to be king of your life. You give up your, your right to Him. He's sovereign, but He's also humble. He's gentle. He also is a jealous God, wants all of you, but He allows us to make that choice and decision. Would you celebrate this Palm Sunday? by receiving Him as Lord and Savior? Would you celebrate this Palm Sunday so that you can serve Jesus as King? Live for Him today. Let others see what God can do in a person's life when it's totally given over to Him. Be that example, especially this week. But if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you in some way, saying, you know what? Not much of a kingship going on there. Maybe there's some things you need to be considering and giving over to him. I'm going to have the worship team come on up as they do. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing these next two songs. As we do, if you need to pray in some way here at the altar or whatever, do that. Obey what Jesus has for you. The Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Just obey. Have a little time with, with Jesus at this moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your your guidance during this time. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to have your way in our lives. And as people are praying to you right now and spending time right now just asking, Lord, is, is, are, you, are you king of my life? Do I honor you as king in my life? I pray, Lord, that you'd bring that answer to them. And then, and then we would act upon how you answer that question in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for this time together to be able to pray, allow you to do a work in our, in our hearts and our lives as we continue on with this time together and singing these next two songs. Lord, I pray that you minister to us and work in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.